Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I want to go back to a statistic that really stood out to me and it was a little bit alarming and it's gotten a bunch of pushback given the lack of testing. Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York State, saying the hospitalization rate for the coronavirus in New York State is 15 to 19 percent. He was arguing for more capacity for hospital beds, for ventilators, and he was talking about the incredible strain it's going to put on the healthcare system in the United States. Joining us now uh, is Andy Slavitt, former acting administrator for Medicare and Medicaid services, no one better to have a frontline view on exactly how strained this could potentially be. Andy, I want to first get your idea, get your thoughts on that 15 to 19% hospitalization rate. People are pushing back and saying that's sensational considering the fact that so many people haven't been tested. Do you think that it is an accurate reflection of just how dire this virus is when it does affect people and they do develop uh, symptoms? So everybody's going to be hearing all sorts of data, and we should all appreciate the fact that this is a novel virus. It hasn't been with us for that long, and every data is a piece, a piece of data is only a data point. And so over time, we'll have, I think, reliable forms of data. But as you listen to this data, I think we should be closer to, um, I wouldn't say anybody should panic, but we should be closer to panic than we should be to calm. Um, on the scale of one to ten, uh, we should be at an eight. We shouldn't be. So I tend to say every piece of data that I see, um, I I want to understand it and assume uh, the challenges until proven otherwise. Because in this environment, where you're where we have no immune system for this virus, where a number of people have underlying medical conditions, where we have a number of seniors who, to whom this is a lethal condition, better to be safe. And if we're wrong, and if the 18% turns out to be 10%, um, hallelujah. Someone can go back and criticize the people who said 18% later, but I certainly, I certainly would rather behave uh, on the much more cautious side. So, Andy, just broadly defined, can you give us your sense of kind of how you think our U.S. healthcare system is prepared for what could be uh, a surge in patients uh, from this virus? So we're not prepared, uh, but but let me put that in context. Um, you know that that expression um, they didn't build the church for for Easter Sunday uh, is one that comes to mind. Um, you know, if we built hospitals in New York eight times the size, uh, then we would be um, you, know, we, you know that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But there are places where we should be better prepared. Um, things like surge capacity, the ability to bring um, hospitals, um, ships, uh, equipment, um, safety gear. Um, we, you know, we should have been had, we should have had much higher stockpiles of that. I will tell you that those recommendations have been strongly made in certain quarters for a long, long time. Um, and I think dismissed, um, candidly by this administration, although I'm not trying to take a shot at them. I think it's just a fact. Um, uh, but, but I will also tell you that even if we had prepared, um, I still believe, even if we were better prepared, uh, the the scope of the virus is such that I think we still would have been uh, overwhelmed. So we're going to see a lot of parts of our hospital system under strain, most particularly the people who work in the healthcare system on the front line, 
who I think are are real going to end up being our real heroes in all of this because they are uh, going to be operating uh, often without a playbook, um, seeing a lot of things that is that are contagious, with not without the best protective gear at times because our supplies are running running low, and and they're going to be overwhelmed. And it's that group of people that I think we really have to demonstrate an immense amount of gratitude for. Uh, because they're really going to be the ones that are going to have to help us get through this. Andy, one other thing that uh, Governor Cuomo said was that he expects the virus to peak in New York State in 45 days, which seems like quite a long time from now for it to peak. Can you give us a sense of, if that is the case, what the scope of cases could potentially be and whether asking Americans to stay home actually will help alleviate that or at least uh, mitigate that? So it's really interesting. Uh, you, you all, of course, have heard all of these ex- the expression "flatten the curve." Yeah, right. All of America is becoming familiar with that expression. Hashtag flatten the curve. Yeah, it's it's, it's trending. Yes, exactly. right. it's it's trending and it's trendy. Um, maybe there should be clothing lines called uh, "flattening your curves" or something. But oh the, lord, <laughs> the, oh lord, exactly. We're going to go all kinds of fun places with this virus. We're going to have to have some humor, um, in my opinion. But um, the the uh, the truth is that implication of that means we would rather it actually take longer than have it shorter. Uh, and I, I know that that's a weird thing to get our hands around because that means that the social disruption, the economic disruption will go on for longer. But if we can, if we socially isolate, um, we will reduce the number of cases to your prior question that, that the healthcare system has to handle. Uh, but it will also mean that uh, this is going to go on for a longer a longer period of time, uh, and, uh, and 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 we should be okay with that um, because we will be able to build immunity to the virus eventually, um, have some herd immunity eventually, um, have some uh, 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 drugs that can combat it. But um, it only it will only work. The only way it works is if people socially isolate, and, and I hate that expression. Uh, because I don't want people to socially isolate. I want people to physically isolate. But it only works if people hashtag stay home or if you prefer stay the F home, as I've seen trending on Twitter. That's the most (laughs) important thing people can do right now. Andy, how about the testing? Uh, Where are we in terms of getting test kits broadly disseminated across the country so we can really start getting accurate uh, count as to the scope of this? Well, candidly, we're, we're well behind where we should be. Um, you know, the, we had the, our first um, case the same day as South Korea, and their test their tests were available ten days prior to that first test. And we are so we're you know roughly a month or more behind uh, where we need to be. And you know now I believe we're doing all of the right things to ramp up production. I think you'll see production uh, double uh, and tests double um, across the country this week, um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, it will still be well short if you look at a, on a per capita basis uh, for the rest of the world. We'll still be in last place. And then I, I, I will say this: um, we will. See, I suspect we'll see a bump, but we will. Our supply chain, the things that allow us to do these tests, because it's not just a cute swab. There's a bunch of things you need in the lab, reagents and machines and so forth. Those supplies are in demand across the world. And there's only so many of them, and they can only be made so fast. So I suspect we will have a surge in tests, and that'll be good news. But I think they will then become in short supply again.
Andy, uh, just talking about hashtag flatten the curve and hashtag stay the F home um, and all the sort of social media presence, you know, there's sort of sort of gallows humor out there, people coming up with innovative ways to pass the time in their homes as they isolate. But there's also talk about uh, a rise in anxiety and a a rise in sort of uh, this feeling of fear. And you said, you know, on the scale from panic to panic, panic. <laughs> what I mean, how can you can you give people a sense of well, perhaps if people take it really seriously, it won't have to be the catastrophe that you're saying. Yeah. Well, look, this will end. This will end. We will get through this. The and we will have a period in our lives that we'll always look back on. That will be, um, you know, will it be 45 days? Will it be 90 days? Will it be uh, underneath history? We'll, 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 we don't know that now, but we'll know that. Um, and, and we will always look back on this. Uh, so it will it will be over. We should just be thinking about this: is every life lost, just like every life life lost to the flu or a heart condition, um, we should try to prevent. So um, that means some sacrifice. That means staying in. That means doing some things differently. That means and 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 I and with that comes some anxiety, financial anxiety, social anxiety, yeah. um, all of those things. And, and it, it's it's okay. To, uh, to to feel uh, those things because the future is uncertain while we're in it. Right. But we will get through this. We're going to have to leave it there. I could speak with you all okay. afternoon. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Andy Slavitt, former acting administrator for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, talking about the situation facing the healthcare sector. This is Bloomberg. As we look at the potential for a peak in New York State, one of the most heavily affected regions by coronavirus spread, uh, in 45 days, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a yeah. long disruption, disruptive period. And I'm wondering on the market implications, this is the unknown and a lot of people trying to game out when it's time to start getting back in as as people watch markets whipsaw. And, and Peter Cheer has been watching it and he's been doing an incredible job, really, uh, monitoring not only the macro, but also the micro uh, from Academy Securities ahead of macro strategy. Peter, where are you in terms of the risk off feel that we've had in markets? The worst day in uh, the S&P yesterday since 1987. Are we getting close to peak panic here? Yeah. So I like getting risk on Friday ahead of um, the president. We clearly rallied in the weekend, sold off and are lower than that now. I would be adding a little bit of risk here, but I caution people. I think it's really a bet on D.C. coming through with a very large stimulus program, probably in the trillion-dollar stimulus program, and maybe a side bet that we make progress against the virus faster than people expect. So interesting, Peter. So I think we had the Fed come in in a big way uh, over the weekend. What did you make of that? And do you think uh, the Fed is doing all that it needs to do here to try to stabilize markets? You know, I think the Fed missed getting the commercial paper facility out on Sunday. Um, you know, they've announced it today. One of my experiences with the financial crisis was that they often, not just the Fed, but um, politicians, everyone would kind of miss deadlines. They would try and put in a fire break. And once the fire had gone past that, the break did no good. So I think we have to act more aggressively and be ahead of the things. Because I think market and economic psychology kicks in. And being just a little late sometimes is almost as bad as doing nothing at all. And just to give you a little bit more detail, the commercial paper facility is uh, going to be that the Federal Reserve is arranging will be backed by $10 billion uh, from the Treasury Department. So it'll be $10 billion of credit 
protection uh, for this facility in order to right. lower the short-term costs for companies looking to access the commercial paper market. I'm wondering, Peter, one thing that you've done a really good job of is looking at the technicals underpinning this. And a lot of people are trying to figure out how much we're seeing just mass unwinds of risk arb uh, funds, of other leveraged strategies, hedge funds. You know, are, Is that really what has been driving the activity that we've been seeing? I think it was a big part of last week. Um, you know, I think this risk parity type strategy, which ranges from the more sophisticated, like a Bridgewater who uses commodities, stocks, and bonds, to less sophisticated ones where people just own stocks versus bonds, they were getting hit. I think we are either done or very close to the end of that selling pressure coming from those funds. And those are bad because they're kind of like hitting the sell everything button. They get forced to sell stocks, bonds, and commodities. So it feels like when you're in the end of that, the thing I'm watching most closely right now is one to three year corporate bond paper. And, you know, I think in golf they say, you know, you drive for show and you putt for dough. To me, it's that short end that's really critical because that's what people rely on for financing. That's to me why it was so important that the Fed gets this commercial paper facility up and running, that they're getting banks to borrow at the discount window again to alleviate pressure at that front end because that's really where, you know, it's really exciting to talk about where the long dated bonds are. But problems there are really, really scary to me, and I think they can be addressed, and they're being addressed. Peter, are you seeing any capitulation in the market right now, or is it just uh, too early? You know, it, we saw some capitulation, I think, last week, um, and it was a bit encouraging. Again, on Friday, where you saw things like the high-yield market and the leveraged loan market not get dragged around quite as badly by the stock market. Right now, we're back to everything being hit hard again, everything moving in tandem, um, credit spreads moving much wider as stocks struggle. Having said that, there's a bunch of new issues out today in the investment-grade corporate bond market. If those can get placed, I think it's going to show that there is this kind of cash on the sidelines. Everyone's just waiting. But as a whole, it, you are really making a bet right now that D.C. is going to get its act together. Because I am afraid if D.C. doesn't get its act together... We have a very different situation in the financial crisis because, to me, this is a bottom-up problem, and it's going to be small businesses and individuals losing their income because they're doing what they're being told to by the government. And if that's not replaced, I think that trickles up very quickly as people don't make rent payments, don't do this. And, you know, we all look at that underemployment rate um, as well as the unemployment rate. I think that underemployment rate could skyrocket to financial crisis levels in a matter of weeks if government doesn't act. Hey, Peter, we really appreciate your thoughts. Peter Cheer, Head of Macro Strategies at Academy Securities, uh, calling us on the phone, giving us his thoughts here, Lisa. And it's, Thank you. Yeah. It's really an issue. I think Peter really makes a good point there right at the end, which is, uh, you know, despite what we're hearing from Governor Cuomo about what's going on in the tri-state area, really do need uh, potentially, I think, to what the markets are telling us, is a federal stimulus plan uh, to really, um, you know, really address some of the economic, uh, you know, issues that small businesses, medium-sized businesses are yeah. facing. I also think it's interesting. He pinpointed the Exxon and Verizon issuances coming to the investment-grade bond market. It really, it'll be interesting to see how those issuances go, particularly for Exxon, given the fact that they were downgraded yesterday and the price of oil is falling off a cliff. So, uh, an interesting time to refinance. But Verizon also coming to market. Interesting right. to see. I mean, there's a lot of cash supposedly waiting to buy this stuff, although we've seen some massive outflows. Record. From yeah, we have. Rate. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, but a lot of stock, what I'm amazed at is you look at yesterday's trading, a lot of stock was trading down at those levels. So, you know, a lot of activity in the marketplace, a lot of volume in the marketplace. Uh, you wonder if this is kind of setting some type of stabilization, some type of floor. We will see going forward. This is Bloomberg. 
we are talking about China. That's one thing John mentioned, that, that Bloomberg Economics just downgraded its expectations for the growth. And it's not that surprising, given the, dism- given the dismal numbers we got over uh, the weekend out of China, which raises a question about supply chains and just getting the materials that companies in the United States and elsewhere in the world need in order to produce and sell their products. Joining us now, Gorang Shastri, Managing Director, Mergers and Acquisitions uh, in Business Services, uh, focused on logistics and transportation for Lincoln International. Uh, Gorang, I'd love to start with just how vast the disruption has been given the shutdowns that we saw in China earlier this year, how disruptive has that been to the supply chain? Sure, and it's uh, certainly had a profound impact on the global supply chain here, in particular in the first few months of the year, and certainly remains an evolving and dynamic situation here. Um, you know, it, it really did start over worries about sourcing product from China as they were forced to shut down production, particularly here in the U.S., as many of our uh, manufacturers have a significant amount of exposure to uh, Chinese production. In fact, 15% of the Fortune 100 companies have Tier 1 suppliers that are supplying parts directly into the U.S. manufacturing process. And, you know, even more worrisome is virtually all of the Fortune 100 companies are sourcing uh, or have Tier 2 suppliers all based in affected areas of China. I think, you know, at least for the first couple of months of the year, uh, most U.S. companies were able to get by here with a lot of the buffer stock that they had pre-bought in anticipation of a slowdown that typically occurs with the Chinese New Year. I think what's been a little bit more worrisome is that as uh, China came back from the holidays here, there's been some challenges really over the past few weeks um, to really get goods out of the country. So production is starting to slowly restart in the country, but they're having challenges finding truck drivers and getting through a lot of the heightened levels of screening that are required to get these products overseas. And certainly it's not just those suppliers and manufacturers that are looking for finished goods from from China, but also those that are sourcing components that are required in production. So now worries are over what does future production capacity look like here uh, in the U.S. as well as uh, globally here if you can't get certain critical components that you're sourcing from China. So I think this has really highlighted the fact for many uh, companies that were already reexamining their su- supply chains given the trade wars, do we need to figure out alternate supplies outside of China going to other countries like Vietnam or in Europe going more near sourcing to Eastern Europe or even in the U.S. Re, uh, reigniting uh, efforts to source products from Mexico. So I think this will only um, heighten the level of attention that's being put on making sure you have redundancy in the supply chain and moving away from the reliance in China. So, Gorong, how about here in the U.S.? It's very early days of trying, of, of kind of this country kind of coming to grips with the virus and, and shutting down in certain cities. Give us a sense of kind of how the logistics set up here in the U.S. may play out. From the, I'm, I'm thinking the trucking companies, railroads. What's the status there? Sure. Sure. And I think, look, fortunately, um, thus far, we have been fairly resilient here. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of panic in terms of going out there and stocking up uh, inventories, uh, you know, in terms of household goods. But um, I think the longer term worry here is if this is more pervasive, it's going to have an impact on, on, uh, on an unemployment here. You know, if you look at the ports on the West Coast, for example, at the port of Long Beach here, if we start to see a, a prolonged uh, shutdown, there's going to be millions of jobs at 
risk here if there's less cargo that's coming across through those ports. Uh, we've had 14 months of consecutive declines in the shipments that are coming in from overseas, and that is going to continue here uh, for most estimates here. And what that means is, you know, as many as one out of nine people that are kind of in those jobs at the ports will potentially lose their jobs here. Um, but then thinking about some of the more critical supply chains that we need, including pharmaceuticals and other uh, electronics that may be going into healthcare equipment, I think there's heightened efforts here in the U.S. to make sure that those supply chains remain uh, unimpacted here. So we, we are optimistic that that will be the case here, and certainly it's getting a lot more attention than it was getting here three or four weeks ago when everyone's attention was just on, can we get product out of China? Now it's really, let's make sure our domestic supply chains remain intact as well. Grong Shastri, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Grong is a managing director and head of Lincoln International's North American Logistics. Let's bring in Max Meeson. He covers all things healthcare related by Bloomberg Opinion. And Max, I want to start with that hospitalization rate of 15 to 19 percent. I mean, is that an accurate kind of, of, of rate or is it impossible to actually know given the fact that there isn't that widespread of a testing? Um, you know, that, that, that rate is a little bit separate from the testing it's in the sense that these are, you know, the number of cases that they actually see that, um, you know, that, that need to, to actually be admitted, that need that more intensive care. And that, that's not so far outside of, of the sort of range of numbers we've seen in, in other countries, um, you know, like, like China and Italy. Um, you know, this, this is a disease that is genuinely serious for, for significant subsets of the population, both the elderly um, and people that are immunocompromised who have other conditions, you know, they, they have the potential to develop pneumonia. They will have trouble breathing um, if, if they develop a bad case of this. So it will be a, a significant portion of, of people that we see uh, that, that are, are going to need to be hospitalized. Part of the, the reason that that rate is the way it is, is also that um, a lot of people that get the virus are, can and should stay home. And that, that's really important for, you know, making sure that we're not overwhelming hospitals and, um, you know, not, not putting undue strain. You know, these, these people working in the ERs already are working under a lot of stress, um, and their, their attention and bed should be devoted to people that, that really need it. So we can hopefully, you know, keep, if, if the hospitalization rate is high, that's a bad thing because those are the cases where that means we're seeing the cases that we need to see as opposed to the majority of, of young and comparatively healthy people that, you know, even if they get the virus, it, it's not all that essential that they, they run to treatment or run to get tested. They should monitor their symptoms, but the, the what they should be doing is just staying home. So, Max, I was just mentioning to Lisa that uh, Governor Cuomo is really putting a lot of focus on the hospitalization and the potential scarcity of beds and hospital workers and the capacity of the hospital system. Are you hearing that from other parts of the country or other leaders? Um, you know, it's something that you hear constantly from people who study health policy and, and study epidemics. This is the I, the most important thing. Uh, it's the you know, swing point of this epidemic is avoiding overwhelming hospitals. When you have too many people for the number of, of beds and ventilators, uh, something that we're seeing in Italy, you end up having to ration them to devoting those resources to the people that are most likely to survive. That's not a choice that we want to be making in America, that we want to force 
America to make force doctors to make. We want to have the capacity to give everybody the the best possible treatment and the best possible chance of making it through. The only way to do that is to slow the rate of infection um, so that we aren't getting so many cases that we will get that that kind of overwhelming growth that will lead to, to overwhelming hospitals. So yeah, that that's absolutely the crucial issue and the fundamental thing that all policy all policy is and should be addressed at at combating. Max Neeson, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you uh, throughout the days and weeks ahead. Max Neeson, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things healthcare. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.